Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. After teachers' unions stake their political positions in the future of public education on keeping schools closed, excuse me, open for virtual learning, and to keep students in masks, a parents' revolt has erupted nationwide, with parents and their advocates taking a greater interest in education issues. Some in the education field have also become alarmed at ideologically charged teaching influenced by critical race theory and by the learning loss experienced by students as a result of the COVID lockdowns. Covering these and other issues is the website Chalkboard Review. Joining me to discuss the project and key issues in education is Tony Kinnett, co-founder and executive director of Chalkboard Review. Uh, Tony, before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Absolutely. I was a former junior education policy advisor for Governor Scott Walker in Wisconsin. Uh, I was a two-time teacher of the year in eastern central Indiana uh, before moving on to be a head biology teacher and then the director of science for the largest school corporation in Indiana, Indianapolis Public Schools. And uh, between all of those things, two master's degrees, a lot of different political commentary writing, and a whole mess of education policy. So where did, you, where did the idea for Chalkboard Review come from? What inspired you to, to form this website and what do you hope to achieve with it? It was actually my co-founder, I, my co-founder's idea, Daniel Buck. He, who had also been writing politically for quite a while, noticed that uh, when the two of us would write for education publications like Ed Week, Chalkbeat, or for some other larger organizations, if we didn't pitch an education article that was really far to the left, we didn't get published. And he didn't like that. A lot of people that we spoke to didn't like that. So he suggested that we start a publication that will publish all voices in education, that our editing team would not decide whether it was a good article or not our audience would. And I said, no, uh, I didn't want to start a publication uh, that I you know, thought would flounder around for a month and then you know, kind of fade away. Uh, but he was pretty persistent. A lot of us in the idea space uh, really started working on the idea. I finally relented. And after eight months, we started Chalkboard Review in a year, had 50,000 monthly readers, and we're publishing education opinions, commentary, breaking news, etc. from all around the country. And that's really the goal, is that teachers who would not traditionally have had a voice or homeschooling parents or anyone in the community that is involved in education uh, should be able to listen, to see what's going on in the classroom, and then also to speak uh, their opinions on education and how we should shape our next generation's learning processes. So when you say that uh, you and your your colleague couldn't get your opinions published by the sort of quote-unquote mainstream education publications unless they were really far to the left, can you give like an example of that? Absolutely. I was on a doctoral research team at Ball State University, uh, and we were designing a Hispanic laboratory environment for a science classroom. Uh, my section of the paper was curriculum development. That's what one of my master's degrees are in. And I suggested that for Hispanic students, it was more beneficial for their English as a second language environment for them to be pointed towards learning English proficiently in the science lab than by basically translating everything from English to Spanish and uh, kind of coddling them through linguistically. So put, uh, put, put, simply, political... put simply to keep the, the principal language of instruction in English than making it in Spanish. Yeah, with a scaffolds for students who aren't quite there yet. Mm -hmm. So the goal is to get kids up on the platform of English. And it wasn't really an apolitical point. 
but I was uh, basically kind of quietly shushed away from the program because that wasn't what uh, Dr. Ding was looking for. Uh, there were a couple other instances uh, where Buck or I had written for a couple education publications about things like discipline, about things like uh, reading proficiencies, phonics, uh, the idea of labs and what they should and shouldn't include, as well as things like homework. And the editor simply said, no, we're not interested because they weren't very far to the left. They were usually very meritocracy based. Mm-hmm. So what are the what are the key issues in education right now, in your opinion? Well, first and foremost is academic uh, achievement. So many schools have become grounds for mediocrity uh, that many parents around the country are frustrated that the what they considered the good academic institutions they went to are pumping out students who can't read, they're graduating students who aren't able to participate in the economy. Also, the incredible politicization of our classrooms in which students are racially charged as either guilty or as virtuous or the, told that they have to what, be what often go, What often goes by the common, sort of common language expression, critical race theory. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the idea that everything in our society is grounded in race. That's very common in a lot of inner city schools. It's common in a lot of uh, suburban and suburban schools now. So those things are kind of starting to really become a driving point with parents to the polls. And then, of course, the idea of, of school choice and that parents shouldn't be fettered to a school district based on their zip code. We just saw that with the Iowa primaries last night. We saw incumbent candidates basically booted off in the Republican primaries because they weren't pro-school choice. So mm -hmm. those three issues are really the driving forces. Uh, there are some uh, secondary and tertiary issues that usually involve more politicization in regards to gender and mm -hmm. uh, other topics. So let's let's start with curriculum with the uh, let's I'll just call it curriculum rigor for my own simplicity. Uh, who are the key players in in that issue area? who's who's trying to keep the mediocre mediocre? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I mean there's there's been a very interesting social push in the last 20 years in education that as long as you follow your heart and you just do do your best and and you just, go in there and with a big smile on your face, then everyone's a winner. And, and this idea is really carried forward into education from a lot of university studies. A lot of psychologists and uh, school counselors uh, also have really shoved forward this idea that it's not what you produce, but it's just that you're there. And it's just that you're a part of the game. And that, of course, doesn't you, you being, fit. You being a student or you being a, an educator? Oh, well, either one, really. There are a lot of educators now that are told they can just be mediocre and as long as they have their license and they go to the professional developments, uh, then they're good enough. As long as they affirm their students, then it's the heart that counts. And that's really become the pervasive idea in education. And that underperformance that is produced as a result usually gets shunted off to a scapegoat. To what extent are the teachers unions pushing, certainly on the, ed on the protection of educators side, they obviously are, but even on the like lack of curriculum rigor, how, to what extent are they involved? Well, like a lot of massive unions, there's always a tendency with some kind of bloated bureaucracy to, again, always choose a scapegoat whenever it comes that individuals in your institution aren't performing. Uh, teachers unions are always drawn to defend teachers in cases where their academic or their uh, social performance is pathetic. And a lot of the teachers unions, instead of saying, hmm, maybe we should set some higher standards for our teachers, 
have lowered the standards for everyone and have defended worse and worse. And of course, again, with the unions as political as they are, usually bring in a lot of hyper progressive points to outline their strategies for what they see or success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so now let's get into the, 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 the debate over the some of that politi- politicized instruction, the, the critical race theory. Uh, when did that take off? When did that? That seems like it sort of just kind of popped into existence in mid-2020, early 2021. Where did that come from? So this is always something that's really funny for me to hear because I've studied critical race theory at the graduate level for about eight years now. Uh, This is something that I was writing about in 2015 and 2016 as it started to become more prominent in a lot of suburban schools and a lot of establishment red states, states that have been red for a really long time and don't have a lot of uh, political action um, and a lot of parental involvement usually as a result. Critical race theory in education really started to pop up in the 90s. And I point to Gloria Ladson-Billings, who's a professor from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who took a look at the epidemic of fatherlessness, of academic failure, of intergenerational poverty that was coming out of the inner cities and had to address it because you have to address this massive crisis. Inner city schools were were starting to show massive gaps that Mm -hmm. needed to be addressed. And of course, you could say that it was the cultural degradation of the United States that started during the sexual revolution in which father fathers being in the home was seen as necessary as fish needing a bicycle. <laughs> Instead of you know doing that, which would then criticize certain cultural elements of some communities, Instead, Gloria Ladson-Billings points to critical race theory, which had come out of the 70s and the 80s and through writings like Derrick Bell and Pablo mm-hmm. Ferrer. And she therefore stated that in order to fix education, in order to fix these gaps in the inner city schools, which just so happened to have a lot of Hispanic and black students that are struggling, the problem must be racial because we have these all white schools out in the rural areas and they're doing fine. So therefore, the problem must be racial. Now, see, she I, re- see, I remember missed. that that era, obviously, as a layperson and for a period, a. You know, it was I mean, obviously, in the 90s, I was a little kid. Uh, but, you know, when I would read, you know, like Newsweek, you know, it was always or, or the local newspaper. It was always, well, that's just a matter of we need to throw more resources at the city schools. I'd, right. When, when does the, the, the sort of critical race hypothesis break out into the sort of mainstream of education? Well, that's the interesting part, is that Gloria Ladson-Billings missed the most common denominators of intergenerational poverty and fatherlessness, which plague any community that it touches. So what she ended up getting was this scapegoat that anytime there was some kind of an academic gap and you had a large minority population in the school, you could throw up the flag of, well, there is a racial disparity here and therefore must be systemic racism, which is critical race theory. So this starts to become mainstream as communities in the United States start to dilute and you start to see more uh, students from different cultural communities in several different schools and from the inner cities out into the suburbs and from the suburbs out into the rural communities. And those disparities start to pop up, not just in black and Hispanic communities, but in white communities as well, Appalachia, the Southwest, Mm -hmm. uh, the Pacific Northwest even. And it starts to break into the mainstream because basically every time something goes wrong, someone's holding up the race card. And then someone Mm -hmm. start, then some individuals like Ibram X. Kendi, like Kimberly Crenshaw, start to go on the offensive, Uh, Richard Delgado, Robin DiAngelo. 
and say, actually, it's, it's not just the institutions and the systems. It's white people and their children upholding the systems and Jewish people upholding the systems and Asian people upholding the systems. And so they go on this all out assault, uh, not just saying, oh, well, here's an excuse, but here's an excuse and here's the aggressor. So and that's why, when it really starts to hit the public. Sure. So, so then why did it rise to such prominence that not only people who are inclined to believe it, but also people who are inclined to disbelieve it sort of come to know about it as lay people in early, you know, mid 2020 to early 2021? So everyone's locked at home with their kids. I mean, there's been this culture of apathy in American education for decades where basically don't ask, don't tell. I mean, you just kind of trust American <laughs> schools to handle it as they see fit. And as long as your kid comes out reading it and not scarred for life, you're good. Only then parents are locked in with their kids and listening to their classes. And they're like, wait, what did that teacher just say? What did that other student just say to my child that the teacher affirmed or ignored? And all of the sudden, parents are forced to lift the hood of the car and stare the smoke or stare at the smoke coming out of the engine right into their faces. And so that's why it bursts into the public is because American parents are forced to reconcile with the rot in public education. So the, the old the old apathy, oh, I, I'm in a I'm in a good school district that gets uh, high marks from whatever the school assessor is. And I, I moved out to the suburbs. So everything is fine. All of a sudden, you're just kind of shown in front of you that it's not fine. Yeah, I mean it's it's lo it's uh it's my congressman disorder. Mm -hmm. So everyone hates Congress, right? You pull Americans <laughs> like ninety nine percent they think Congress is terrible, except my congressman. My congressman is fantastic. They're super. I love them. I've I've shaken their hand before. And then some news story comes out that you know they're engaged in you know God forbid some kind of illicit drug or sex ring, and all of these other stories start to spill out in tandem, and that's kind of what we're seeing here. So who, who's pushing the sort of public adoption of critical race theory into curricula? I mean, it's, it's the critical race theory and social scholars that come out of universities, those that hold themselves to be morally virtuous. Is, is this just uh, like would, an edu is this just like it's in, you know, education schools teach this as like the substrate of their entire teaching, sort of like, you know, you don't have physicists questioning Einstein's theory of relativity because everything is based on it sort of thing? Uh, it's more, you're, you're on the right track. It's more of, in, in a university setting, the education college is like at the bottom of the funnel. And all of your other social sciences, psychology, sociology, etc., are around it. And so whatever's coming out of your psychology, your sociology departments are going to flow through your education college because teachers have to take classes from those departments. And so those insane, crazy theories that came out of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and the 90s, these very strange neo-Marxist, hyperbolic, basically feelings-based racial gaslighting theories are seen as morally virtuous and answers to definite problems that we all see in education. I mean, it's mm -hmm. no question you walk into an inner city school in Indianapolis, per se, and if you, if you average the black student scores and you average the white student scores, then the black student scores more often than not are going to have a lower average reading score. And you have to have a reason for that. And so it's easiest for them to say, well, it must be racial. The real answer is most likely your average failing student is struggling with either fatherlessness or intergenerational poverty, mm -hmm. regardless of color. Mm -hmm. But 
that takes a little bit more work and it's you have to actually come to some pretty tough conclusions on you know character decisions and choices and how we solve intergenerational poverty and that's often a lot more difficult than just saying oh it's it's this color's fault mm-hmm. no that makes sense um so what's how has sort of the pushback developed uh who who's leading it who's been effective who's been less effective is there is this there is, hope? <laughs> well, there's definitely hope. I'm very optimistic because uh, parents are taking serious interest in their children's education as more of a common practice than I would say at any point since probably around the Second World War. Uh, generation the Boomers basically came back and and kind of lived off the fad of the Greatest Generation, and then it's kind of gone downhill ever since. Uh, but what we're seeing now is this like great awakening of parents taking a serious interest in their kids' education, and that's always beneficial across socials, across academics, mm-hmm. a- across communications. What I will say, though, as far as the leaders and how this all came to be, there was an education reform movement before all of this broke out, and it was your school choice movement. The funny thing is a lot of people don't realize that a lot of the individuals in the education reform movement are just not worth a bucket of dirt. Um, it's Explain. very politically. Mm-hmm. So there are some individuals and organizations that are, it's very easy to get out in front of people and say school choice good. Mm-hmm. And everyone nods along and says, oh yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, it, it solves poverty. It does all these wonderful things. And that's their only political stance. And on every other policy issue, they have terrible opinions. And even on what they believe should be allowed, like there are certain individuals in the, the education reform movement in the 20 teens that advocated there should be black-only public schools that Jewish kids shouldn't be allowed to go to and a a whole other manner of horrible things. But because they said school choice was good, it was they were allowed to be part of the movement. And so then this this entire social mess comes to fruition in the middle of COVID. And the education reform movement was kind of looked to as the leaders Mm -hmm. um, who really didn't want to touch social issues before because you would get into what I just talked about, a lot of crazy opinions. Mm-hmm. And it was a battle that it was kind of a large coalition. No one really wanted to touch. And uh, it really forced basically people to choose a side on kind of common individual liberties or this weird hyper social aspect. And so individuals like Corey DeAngelis, uh, who've been a large uh, a large outspoken leader, who've come around on cultural issues, not that he came from any bad issues, but like he just came around to talking about cultural issues right. in public he, he, space. He's he's used them you know, you have a problem with this cultural issue, therefore you should support school choice. <laughs> yeah, and absolutely. And then, of course, Chris Rufo is, has been a leader on this this subject and several other industry and group leaders, all the way from AEI education more slightly to the establishment side to Heritage Foundation on the more traditional conservative side to uh, Moms for Liberty and on the more populist side of things. There are a lot of industry leaders and really a lot of players at the game because this is such a massive issue. Education policy touches Americans more than any other kind of policy, um, maybe other than like financial and economic policy. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, obviously our, our, our children are the leaders of tomorrow, as the cliche goes. <laughs> we do like our cliches in the education <laughs> space, and there's been a lot of pushback as a result to a lot of people entering the game especially towards teachers and parents who speak out against the norm. That's 
very, very against the rules in a lot of uh, edu Twitter and education academia. Oh, I mean, we saw it with the National School Boards Association controversy with the letter that they sent to Attorney General Garland. Absolutely. I mean, calling parents domestic terrorists is is something that was glossed over so quickly in a lot of mainstream news. But to and the same with the disinformation board as well, to, to the idea that the, the government should be labeling citizens who disagree as terrorists or dishonest villains inciting violence is a horrific idea that we've seen become all too common from this administration in the last couple of years. Well, Tony, uh, before we let you go, is there anything that you guys are doing that you'd like to uh, especially let our listeners know about? Absolutely. So Chalkboard Review and Choice Media, who are growing very much closer together, there's going to be an announcement on that here in about a week or so, uh, are currently doing a series called Read the Bill, which analyzes education texts. Uh, You may have seen it trending during Florida's 1557, so-called the Don't Say Gay Bill. And that is we take a look at some of the criticisms or the affirmations of a piece of education legislation or an executive order. And then we assess based on the bill's text whether that's true or not, because no one else is actually getting in there and doing that kind of work. And so we will. And that's really a pretty good summation of the work that we're doing at Chalkboard Review. No one else is doing this particular thing in this space. So we'll do it and we'll try to do it well. All right. Well, thank you again to Tony Kinnett of Chalkboard Review. The website is thechalkboardreview.com for joining us. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week. Thank you.